are here in the 11FS office in WeWork Oldgate, London, for episode 67 of Blockchain Insider, the weekly show dedicated to the news of where blockchain meets crypto and crypto meets institutions. Today we bring you tokenizing equity, one broker gets broke, and soldier boy does Bitcoin. Oh! Uh, oh. (laughs) (laughs) I tried it and it failed. All this and more on today's show. Alrighty, today I'm joined by some excellent guests as always. Uh, first up is Junian Wong, who's Managing Director of EU and Asia at Coindesk. Jun, how are you? I'm very well, thanks. Uh, you had a little conference in Singapore that went quite well. Yeah, thousands of people. Uh, we, we almost had to call security uh, after CZ finished his talk because he was just mobbed by hundreds of fans uh, as he got off stage. The CEO of Binance is so hot right now. Um, but um, we're, we're not alone, uh, Jim. We are joined by uh, the, the wonderful Claire Wells, who's Director of Legal and Business Affairs at Circle. Claire, how are you? Yeah, great. Thank you. Very pleased to have you on the show. Thank you for coming back. And uh, returning as well is Aman Kohli, uh, who is the CTO of Financial Services and Insurance Enterprise Services at Microsoft Limited. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> <laughs> we included the limited for just like uh, added words. You know, you've got to be accurate. Yeah. Uh, but I, I'll just say this. I've had no incidences where I've had to call security. You, you mean you're not mobbed everywhere you go? Not yet. But you're so damn dapper. Well, I don't know what to take with that, but thank you. <laughs> You're a dapper human being, sir, and and I, I, I'm a fan of sartorial elegance. But uh, let's get on with uh, some actual blockchain news uh, rather than sartorial news. Um, and the first story comes from Coindesk, um, and this headline is a heck of a headline. Circle eyes crypto securities bid with crowdfunding site acquisition. So the summary here is Circle are reportedly moving to acquire Seedinvest, a crowdfunding platform for startups. Their acquisition will if approved by regulators, open the door to allowing startups to raise funds by selling digital tokens via the platform. Jeremy Allaire, who's the CEO, said, we envision a robust, multi-sided, distributed marketplace that can host tokens which represent everything of value, physical goods, fundraising, equity, real estate, creative production, such as works of art, music and literature, service leases, and leases, and time-based rentals. So all kinds of interesting stuff. Claire, What's going on here? Are you guys um, tokenizing the whole world? Tokenization of everything. It's just the start, right? Tokenize all the things. But I guess we've got to point out this is uh, subject to approval by regulators. But um, for the uninitiated, what's crowdfunding and, and how is it different from what you might see in you know, kind of the other bits of financial markets? Sure. So uh, Seed Invest is a really exciting um, opportunity for us in that they've built out a really fantastic uh, product in the US space in terms of equity financing in the crowdfunding space. What they've done is essentially create a platform which matches entrepreneurs who want to find investors in the on the internet, leveraging um, exciting technology to uh, create liquidity in the market and, and capitalize in that regard. And so crowdfunding has been around for about sort of 10 years-ish. Um, we saw it a lot in the UK. There's Crowdcube and there's, there's many others. Um, but typically, they were building really nice digital platforms for a paper process. They were digitizing kind of the, the equity raising process for, for smaller companies. This is a real opportunity to change the guts of how it works kind of underneath the surface, I guess, a little bit. Um, June, you got any thoughts on this one? 
Yeah, I guess I guess one question I had uh, maybe for Claire slash Circle is, you know, um, um, equity crowdfunding seemed like a thing that wasn't really broken, right? People sign up to Crowdcube or, or, or Seed Invest and 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 they buy their um, shares. So I guess what upsides does uh, like a kind of crypto token version of that uh, bring to the to to customers or, or to companies raising uh, money? Yeah, I think a great question. This, there are definitely synergies between, um, Circle's goals in the long term in towards the tokenization of everything and this acquisition and Seed Invest's, uh, long term goals as well. So the idea is that we want to create an open global and, uh, connected digital, uh, economy. Um, and so with that, I think you saw we acquired Poloniex, the multi-sided marketplace earlier this year which enables people to sort of buy and sell or trade uh, crypto assets. With Seed Invest, um, what we see, what we'll see is essentially uh, an ability to support um, crypto or token crowd fundraising subject to FINRA approval over time. So what we want to essentially do is marry the compliant um equity crowdfunding model with a tech infrastructure of, of crypto assets, tokenized securities um, to provide a new means and an innovative means of capitalization, which brings about um, greater means for uh, interacting with investors and, and greater liquidity as well. So the liquidity point's an interesting one because uh, crowdfunding could arguably be a bit of a niche product to date, nice. right? It, it's kind of, uh, it's been nice, but it's been in the corner and six people used it. Um, okay, I'm being slightly uh, facetious, but it, it wasn't sort of this great um, liberation of equity for everyone. And, and traditionally, equity has a number of drawbacks that tokens didn't. So um, equity is very paper-based once you get past the, the front end, which means there's a whole load of cost involved in just keeping up with that paper trail, which and those costs are ultimately passed on to the investor in terms of fees. So if you can reduce that cost, that's good. The other thing is transparency. Like knowing who, having clean title for an asset is the job of a custodian, but actually being able to prove that much easier, again, further reduces your costs. And, you know, man, you and I are veterans of financial markets and tell how big of a problem those things are. Yeah, Absolutely. What I find really interesting about this, if you look at the way startups have been funded really over the last 10, 12 years, at the higher end of the market, custom PE houses, VC houses have taken high net worth individuals and effectively set up their own internal exchanges. So if I wanted to step through that for the uninitiated, PE houses and bigger VCs have set up their own sort of... Yeah. So. Take an example. Before Twitter and Facebook went public, you could actually buy shares within Twitter and Facebook pre-public. And the way you would do that effectively would be by buying a stake through their venture funds. So I'm Mega VC one and I put a hundred million into Twitter and um as somebody else buys access into buys that a, fund. right. And uh, a lot of ways how these funds are constructed have been through uh, people of uh, lots of money. So money bags would show up. Worth High net worth people or money bags, I guess is how we say yeah. it uh, 50 years ago or something. <laughs> so um, – so high net worth individuals had great access to this. And I'm thinking Scrooge McDuck right now. <laughs> well, you know, whatever attribution, but, you know, let's, let, let's try not to touch on copyright. Um, <laughs> I, I think a couple of things have happened uh, with that as well within kind of some of these venture uh, capital houses. They've set up uh, desk side exchanges. 
to manage that efficiency for you. So you're right. So again, desk side exchanges. So these these bigger funds were buying access to the likes of Twitter. The ultra high net worths would come along. So Scrooge McDuck comes along with his bags of money and says, "I want some Twitter, please." And big VC fund and or private equity house has an, a desk off to the side where they're running a sort of internal exchange where they can do that, which is a ledger, right? Yeah. And then that allowed access to two or three levels below high net worth. Right, mm-hmm. Scrooge McDuck's, uh, you know, frozen out nephews or something, whatever, yeah. whatever the analogy is here. So, what I find really interesting here in this thrust that Circle is doing about tokenizing everything. So, crowdfunding allows normal people to invest in startups early stage, but to get their money out again, they either have to wait for a fixed point for that yes. to happen. This allows them to get out at any point. That's super interesting because you. one of the things that people liked about ICOs was the liquidity. One of the problems was they were so liquid that they were volatile. That's another issue. But if I am an investor in a startup today, I'm along for the ride until I can get a, either some secondary participation. In other words, somebody else comes along and buys my shares or there's some other valuation event and yeah. somebody else invests. Well, and with ICOs, we you know also saw the, the kind of the dark side of liquidity, right? Which is lots of people... That sounds like a movie. <laughs> it's, a, it's a slasher flick. A yeah. Disaster movie, actually. Um, and 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 people without good treasury controls ended up, you know, in serious trouble uh, mm-hmm. this year. So I guess it would be interesting to see what it looks like to have a crowdfunded startup that's liquid from the get-go, managing some of those public market, um, you know, sentiments and pressures. Or, or do you have services that do it for the startups to a certain degree? Do you have people acting on their behalf, um, like an accountant? And and does reducing the overall cost of all of this activity create value there in the marketplace for these other providers to come in and do something uh, interesting, like help you manage treasury as a service? I think in addition to like sort of tokenizing the traditional notion of a security, what this technology does bring is new opportunities and new innovation. As to, as to how equity is capitalized. Leveraging smart contracts or other protocols, uh, you could ensure that payouts or, or dividends were, were made at certain points. At you certain can automate stages. the dividend exactly. payments. You can. Uh, the, the other thing I really like is uh, this idea that fractionalization is something that I don't have today. So I can't buy a half of an Apple share or a third of an Apple share uh, very easily through most consumer-facing platforms. Uh, And so if I had a technology that allowed me to do that really, really simply um, and kind of baked into the technology level, that would potentially further democratize access to this marketplace. But as we're democratizing, we also have a duty of care and responsibility because you don't want people going into the Wild West and losing all of their money. Yeah. I mean, I think we can decouple some of the retail investment um, from some of the more other fundraising concerns. So, What's happening with company formation right now and growth is these other events that happen, whether you're taking on debt or you're doing other sort of structured finance yeah. uh, initiatives. So I'm an entrepreneur and I'm looking at that growth stage. Yeah, yeah, so your Series B, Series C, you're getting up to Series D, E, and F right now. Your exit point used to be Series C or D, mm-hmm. right? But right now, realistically, in the U.S., if you're going to float, you want to be north of four to $500 million capitalization. Mm-hmm. So that's a long way to go, and you still need – equity, you still need liquidity. This sort of mechanism takes it and matures it from crowdfunding, which is really good for formation. But this helps in the scale. Mm -hmm. 
So you could bring in a, a global investor base potentially, yeah. or if not a global investor base, a broader investment base on a platform and have a technology that's kind of interoperable. I think it's kind of exciting, but it's early days, isn't it? Um, we'll, we'll definitely keep following this one as we go forward. The next story, though, comes from Bloomberg. Uh, and this one, uh, the headline here is Yale invests in crypto fund that raised $400 million. Um, apparently, the Ivy League school is getting into the market for cryptocurrencies. Maybe a bit of editorial license there. But actually, this is a $30 billion endowment that's headed by David Swenson. Um, and under Swenson's leadership, Yale's returned 11.8% on average for the past 20 years. That's a heck of a return. Uh, and 96% of endowments and foundations responding to a survey by consulting firm NEPC in February said they didn't invest in digital currencies. Um, so that's a pretty small percentage. Um, but this looks like the, the endowment... Uh, kind of manager here is invested in a fund that happens to hold some crypto. I mean, June, are you any closer to this one? Uh, no, I have no special inf info. Mm. But, you know, w the big joke in, in crypto circles is um, every time um, one of these rumors comes around, it's, you know, it's the the, the much ballyhooed wall of money, institutional money that is coming. Mm. So I guess um, from that point of view, this investment is interesting because, it's, you know, while not a wall of money, it does show that some of the institutional money that was on the sidelines is now um, being put to work, um, albeit not directly in crypto. I mean, you know, David Swenson probably doesn't want to have fee fiddling with the ledger wallet um, to make sure it's safe. Mm. But um, but it's in, you know, Fred, uh, Fred Ursam's fund, which is, uh, which is going to be quite interesting. He's he's a very aggressive, um, I guess, crypto investor and believer. So that's. But there's something about we always saw portfolio management as part of these bigger uh, endowments and uh, you know, even pension funds or sovereign wealth funds. They'd have a very small percentage or even a couple of point basis points of their fund would be in something quite aggressive, uh, emerging market equities or you know just something really uh, direct investments in in certain things. This crypto sort of fits the bill for that at the moment. Yeah, definitely. I think they're just diversifying their portfolio, essentially. But it does mark a, a sort of interesting step in terms of the market generally and, and uh, indicate the sort of maturation that I certainly think we're going to see more of in 2019. Ooh. It's taking a long position, ultimately. Yeah. So uh, it's an emerging area. Um, and I'm sure someone else made the mistake I did when they read Yale. They thought they meant the law company. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. No, this is the one with uh, with the – I guess it's the university or the college, to use the American vernacular, is, that is known for producing most of the people that end up in government or legal firms. So um, you imagine there's some due diligence being done there. Um, and there's a lot of interesting work coming out of Yale looking at you know, kind of how crypto can uh, be useful for, to policymakers um, with the Yale Capstone program that uh, I'm very Unfortunately, I'm involved in around the edges. So interesting things happening. Uh, next story, which um, I think uh, probably in a surprise to nobody, um, comes from Coindesk.com. That's not the surprise to nobody. But the SEC and the CFTC have charged Bitcoin futures firm one broker with securities law violations. So they announced in a press release that it filed charges uh, as well as its uh, against one broker as well as its CEO, Patrick Bruner, for selling security-based swaps to U.S. and international investors without following proper discretionary investment thresholds. Notably, investors could only purchase these swaps with Bitcoin, according to the claims. The SEC is further claiming that one broker was not registered as a security-based swaps dealer and failed to transact its security-based swaps on a registered national exchange. 
Also, the FBI later reported that it seized the OneBroker.com domain, claiming the company has violated money laundering and wire fraud laws, in addition to operating as an unregistered broker-dealer um, and operating as an unregistered future commission merchant. Wow. Um, I think if early 2018 was the regulator is coming, this is the regulator has arrived. Um, June, do you have any uh, any insight on this? Um, I mean, it, it this seems more like a securities problem than a crypto problem, mm-hmm. right? So, I mean, they were taking payment in crypto, mm-hmm. um, but, you know, they were selling securities swaps uh, and they were not a registered broker dealer. So it, it, it seems, you know, the crypto angle seems tangential here. Um, they could have, you know, demanded payment in, in any sort of other currency. I think that's a fair point. Aman, any thoughts on this one? No, I'd, I'd agree with that wholly. I mean, this really does seem to be the regulator just wanting to make sure that uh, money trails are clean. Uh, but also, if you're not registered to do swaps, you should get yourself registered. Yeah, and, and I think there's a real importance to being registered. And uh, there's there's been a movement uh, traditionally, I think, in uh, the, the crypto community and on the more libertarian fringes that suggest we don't need no stinking licenses, let us get on with it laissez-faire. And, and I, I wonder if this is that sort of butting up against reality to a certain degree and, and the regulators kind of sort of saying, no, you, you can't get away with stuff. But um, to your point, is the crypto piece of this tangential and is this just really somebody operating something that they shouldn't have been doing all along. I think they probably got um, a lot of clicks on their press release by putting a Bitcoin in the in that title. So you know, it might be the regulator just looking for for a bit more prominence. Look how much we're doing against that evil crypto stuff. Which which brings me to another point, Clay. You must butt up against all this all the time. Which is the PR around crypto is still pretty toxic, and there's a lot to be done to kind of um, reframe that. Mm-hmm. And I think as one of the businesses that have been you know, kind of at the front edge of being you know, thoughtful about compliance and thoughtful about following the rules, what can we do to ensure that um, you know this this narrative starts to change and that that people don't always see crypto equals bad. Yeah, I think it's a good question. And it's got to messaging has got to start from from the top. I think there's a lot of good work uh, in terms of industry bodies out there like global digital finance and, and our work with with them has been incredibly helpful to essentially form a, a platform or a basis uh, whereby uh, regulators, uh, key industry players, King financial service incumbents can come together and say, okay, well, how do we find a global solution uh, when it comes to regulation? To and I think a lot of it's been an education gap, right? So Definitely. I, I think the, there are simple ways and there are complex ways to manage risk in crypto um, and to understand the existing rules and where where does the rule be something that's just very easy to follow. So for instance, uh, one of the examples recently was with a privacy coin, the coin itself may be private, but it, aside from that, it functions more or less like cash. An exchange or a wallet can still provide, um, can still do KYC, even if you're dealing with the most private of privacy coins. So, you know, that it doesn't mean that you're living in this anonymous world where KYC is impossible. I can still KYC you. Like, I can still know who that customer is. And I think simple points like that where people go, aha, it's not as bad as it seemed to be. It seems obvious, but I think we fear sometimes risk talking at cross purposes with some of this stuff. Yeah, I think that's right. What's happening is on one side, you have traditional financial markets, which expect instruments to show up in one way uh, and people to speak one language. And on the other side, you have computer scientists, libertarians, and just general good old fashioned hippies showing up and saying, well, it should be like this. And you're, you're meeting effectively a culture clash there. 
while at the same time in the crypto space, we are trying to advance the situation to move away from these inefficiencies and move away from the old ledgers and the way of tracking things. But sometimes in that exuberance, you kind of forget that, you know, there have been lessons learned about managing volatility to an earlier point, managing risk, you know, how do you set up futures? How do you set up derivatives? How do you make this as an investment class safe? Mm-hmm. So you can protect your liquidity, you can protect your growth. And, you know, you, you avoid the situation from the earlier story of, uh, you know, illegal wire f- transfer fraud and other th- such things from occurring. Yeah. And, and a lot of it then is also talking about the benefits of crypto. And I think we were talking about that in the first story, which is actually this democratization piece, I think is really interesting, this reducing the cost piece. I mean, there are all kinds of hidden fees in the way that the uh, asset management market and the pensions market work. Uh, one of my favorite stats from Dr. Chris Sear in Leeds University is if I can reduce um, the overall fees you're paying, you know, so from down from 4% to say 3% across all of your you know, hidden fees on your pension or your 401 then over the lifetime of a you know, 30 year old to a 60 year old i can double your pension income like you could make a real difference to people's lives by reducing costs and we're not talking about the technology of crypto and tokenization as being something that can help us achieve that and actually if policymakers start to have that conversation that's a very different conversation so how do we turn this into a positive yeah i think to, as you as you said rightly it's an education piece because there's to date there's been a lot of melding of the actual technology and potential use cases and the sort of crypto assets themselves and a confusion when it comes to uh, blockchain technology and DLT and, and say, Bitcoin as one and the same, which is completely An assumption of being adversarial. Right. Alrighty, next story comes from the Global Trade Review. Uh, and apparently the Marco Polo blockchain platform for trade finance has been released. So DLT is a thing, Aman. This is interesting. So um, it's an initiative to develop an open account trade finance platform. Um, platforms built by TradeIX, R3, and a group of banks on the Corda blockchain framework. Uh, and they're testing, piloting, and managing open account trade finance transactions. The announcement was made in September, where the co-founder and CEO of TradeIX gave the audience insights into the project's timeline. Um, And uh, by the way, we did have a special with um, Richard Brown and Mike Hearn from that conference. So do check out that podcast. If you go back a few episodes, it was a bonus. Banks involved include um, Bangkok Bank, BNP Paribas, Commerce Bank, DNB, Nataxis, NatWest, uh, OP Financial Group and Standard Chartered. The first product, which is now live on the platform, is receivables discounting, and the platform is expecting to be commercialized next year. So, Aman, there's a lot to pick through here. Um, I guess trade finance open account. Shall we start with what that is and what the problem is uh, kind of in trade finance that they're looking to solve here? Yeah. So um, one of the big things what open account allows you to do is you can make a sale of the good before it's shipped. Yes. Right. Why that's important is I'm making 10 million shirts and I'd like to get money before it reaches your stores. Yeah. Right. And unfortunately, that might mean a discount and things like that, the way international finance works. So this is where some of the good things about uh, cryptography matter and Mm. provenance matters. You can bring it across. You can say, okay, we genuinely made these shirts or whatever these physical goods are. And on the other side, how do you guarantee that when it hits these different points of shipping or logistics or even purchasing, 
that they've been reached. And again, that's, mm. that's where the distributed ledger comes into it. So it's, it's great to see this impacting the trade finance world. The criticism I would have is in too much of the trade finance work that's happening, it's mimicking the existing environment. Yeah. And disruption doesn't happen by mimicry. Disruption happens by coming at it orthogonally. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's great to see this happening. It's great to see a coalition of these banks who are very much focused on helping businesses succeed. It'll be great if we can get some efficiencies out of it. But is this real disruption? Well, I guess getting any large group of corporates together to collaborate around a thing is always going to be hard. Um, and I think the the business case for this one's interesting. I remember, I mean, June, you'll remember this, 2015-16, every bank in the world was headlining all of their proof of concepts. This looks like a pilot that's going live, that's getting transaction volume through it. Are we at an inflection point for that bank DLT thing? Yeah, I mean, I guess one question I would have is, um, what is the um, exact status of the project? So it says, you know, they're, they're, they're releasing the platform uh, on, on September um, 13. Se- 13 or 17. Um, but I guess, is that a, is that a beta? Is that, um, I'd be curious to know what, what yeah, state that's in. My understanding is that that platform is running with limited volume. So it's the real life production platform, but they're sort of snagging and testing and, and gradually ramping up the transactions. But I, I, I could be wrong, but that's... That's why I understand. Yeah, it, 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 if so, it would be um, you know finally the uh, the arrival of the much vaunted uh, trade finance um, use case, similar to the wall of money um, that yeah. we have been waiting for all these years. And these things always start small, right? There is no wall of money and there is no uh, use case big bang moment. It's these things sort of come in daylight breaks through the, the blinds, not um, not kind of the wall. Uh, so the, you kind of get these little cracks and these little bits of it happening, but we'll really see it start to speed up through through next year. I, I quite like this because I guess what you'll see um, – Clayton Christensen's definition of disruption is serving the underserved and going after the bottom end of the market. This is coming in at the top end. If this top end of the market is doing stuff that give themselves efficiency, um, it may not be punk rock, but it's certainly got immediate short-term value. If if it helps the producers, that's how you're going to help that bottom end because they're the ones who take on the most risk Mm -hmm. and they're the ones who lose the most in any of these things. Um, So... It'll be good from that. And if this is, you know, step one in this way of things changing, it'll be great. And I think they do say that this is step one and this is the beginning of a journey. And they were also, so I was on stage at a Eurofinance um, kind of economist conference uh, a couple of weeks ago. And I was doing a panel with uh, TradeIX, some guys from IBM, some guys from WeTrade and, and a couple of the banks. And what was really interesting about that is the guys at WeTrade and the guys at TradeIX both said, look, we have... We're going after different parts of the market. We trade are going after the bottom of the market. Um, TradeIX are going after the top of the market. But they both said we're in active conversations to a certain degree. Like they were, I think it was a little bit of PR, but we know we have to interoperate in the future. We know that these things have to make sense and we have to start to standardize because if the, if we just end up with multiple different standards for DLT, then we've recreated the maze of paper we already had and we don't have interoperability. So how they actually get there becomes a super interesting question. 
Yeah, and I, I think the thing that matters here is what are the adjunct services that get built on it? So are we going to have better insurance coming onto it, for example? And I think that's one of the things so. TradeIX talk about is the insurance linked to the data about where the product is in its life cycle and to where the payment is and to the underlying risk. And those adjacent things that happen around the contract that today are manual and slow and all of that kind of stuff, that's the, the real tangible benefit to a corporate here that's trying to manage their supply chain. Alrighty, speaking of Corda and R3, today's episode of Blockchain Insider is brought to you by R3. Uh, blockchain's not just financial services. Today, uh, tons of industries can reap benefits. Insurance is one of the things they say here, Amanda. It's like you knew. Uh, healthcare, pharma, automotive, you name it. Um, you can discover the potential of blockchain for your business with R3's Corda platform and June, it looks like it's it's there, it's in production, it's going live, so that's a good sign. Um, and it uniquely, um, they say, offers privacy, interoperability, integration, and consensus. Lots of multiple syllable words. We'll have to have words with their ad copy people, but all of those things happen to be true. Um, plus, it includes mission-critical features every complex business needs, including the world's only blockchain application firewall, which I keep calling the BAP. Um, I want to make memes out of the BAP, but actually, if you do want to know what that is, Mike and Richard Brown gave us a detailed uh, overview of that a couple of episodes ago, so do check that out. And head over to r3.com for more info. And that was actually, I really enjoyed that conversation with with Mike and uh, with Richard. We did have a couple of listeners kind of email us and tweet me sort of saying that got a bit nerdy, but if, if you're up for getting a bit nerdy, it's it's a great bonus podcast. Yeah, they're, they're both great. They're both incredibly smart. All right, next story comes from Forbes.com. Uh, TD Ameritrade are all in with crypto, according to Forbes, um, investing in an exchange. So um, a strategic investment in ErisX, the cryptocurrency spot futures exchange. So apparently they say the customer interest in digital tokens is still high despite the state of the market. Uh, TD Ameritrade customers want a regulated way to access digital tokens, and it's a great way to make sure the cryptocurrency interests of our customers are being met. So TD Ameritrade, I assume this is the consumer broker, a bit like Fidelity, or if you're in the UK, Hargreaves Lansdowne, this is where you can go buy stocks and shares and all kinds of stuff. And they've basically done a partnership um, and invested in an exchange so that they can offer that through their platform, I'm guessing. Is that what's going on here, June? Do you know? I, I, I don't know, but um, you know this sounds quite consistent with um, with other things I've been hearing in the marketplace um, around you know kind of large um, financial institutions ranging from very big retail banks to uh, to to uh, consumer brokers who are actively looking for ways to let their customers buy and hold uh, crypto assets um, and it's not because they you know for whatever reason want to do it they were not, not to look inno- innovative or whatever but um, they are just facing huge demand from their customers their customers are just want them to solve this problem so um, um, would be consistent with with a lot of what I've been hearing recently so there's this really interesting um, statement in the article which is um, they're one of the first online brokerages to offer investors access to the SIBO world markets and CME uh, Bitcoin futures um, in late December and then this strategic investment gets you access to spot and futures. Uh, and it's interesting, this is a regulated organization moving into this space sensibly. Um, and, and I really like this piece as well. Steve Quirk, which is a quirky name, uh, who's the executive vice president of training and educa- 
publication at TD Ameritrade said there was a day of reckoning for them, similar to what's going on with cryptocurrency. Um, but just like the tech sector did, digital token market should recover and surge. One only needs to look at the popularity of FANG stocks for evidence. A lot of people see the second iteration of crypto to be much better. It's regulated, it's better understood, and we don't have the crazy volatility we did in the early days. I mean, do we agree with this? I, I think it's a good way to come in. Um, again, you're coming in through what happened towards the end of last year with the uh, uh, CME markets and the others. So it's a clean way to come in by going down a spot route. Again, you're just exchanging cash. It's done. Don't have to worry about clearing. It just makes everything simple. It allows the retail investor to learn and allows TD Ameritrade to learn as well. Yeah, it's dipping your toe in the water, um, but doing so in quite a regulated way. Have you any insights, Claire, on, on how you think we're at from a narrative perspective? Do you see um, this sort of shift that Steve Quirk suggests here, that uh, people are starting to view this as a less um, volatile and crazy market, and that we are starting to get our arms around how you make this safer for investors, but also more sustainable? Yeah, I think what we've seen is there is increased interest from institutional investors, accredited investors, but also retail investors in the space. And that's also been met with a response from the uh, or greater responses from regulators worldwide to actually um, tackle tackle considerations in relation to uh, a whole diverse set of um, products in relation to to crypto assets and crypto technology. I think the speculative assets piece is just one aspect of it, though. Yeah. Um, you know, there is there's so much potential in, in yeah, this space. Yeah, I think people get confused by the speculative asset, right. and actually, what they don't see is the token and what the token could mean, and and actually, uh, what the there was this old saying that I actually regret having uh, regurgitated several times, which is um, forget about um, Bitcoin and look at the technology. But the nuance in that is actually really, really important because people really got hooked on these adversarial to uh, global policymakers positions on having a token that didn't come from a central bank will eat the world versus look at how they're tokenizing money, not necessarily as a bearer instrument, but look at how you can represent value differently with technology and cryptography and, uh, and kind of traverse traditional boundaries of organizations. I think therein lies something really, really interesting. And that's sort of where we seem to be coming out to. Completely. And we, as, as you've seen, we've just launched USDC, which is a, a stable coin backed one for one with USD. Uh, and again, that marks sort of for us the first step in terms of um, innovating in this space, leveraging this technology. Stable coins are so hot right now. Right. <laughs> you, you basically need an API for money, right? Which is what, what you're building in. With, with these sort of uh, tokenization for currencies. And um, that's really what makes Bitcoin and some of the other uh, cryptocurrencies useful. It's not so much that the underlying thing they represent. It's the fact that I can build an API around it so I can integrate it. It was the permissionless it. innovation. It was the fact that any developer could pick that up. Same with Ethereum. Any developer could pick that up and move value around relatively easily. But the underlying way they did that may not have been something that you want to use immediately or, or may have come from a perspective of we're going to reinvent money rather than we're going to reinvent how money works but not the economics necessarily. Yeah, I mean, you know, Bitcoin tried to revolutionize about 100 different things. And hopefully 95% of them will have turned out to be a good revolution that's happened. But I think the thing is, like we spoke earlier on the uh, uh, trade finance side of things, and all of these things are just putting sticky plaster on the fact that we don't have an API in money mm -hmm. and transfers. 
That's what all of this is. It's like, okay, I will pay you if this condition is met. It's hard to believe how much paper you have to do mm -hmm. just for that. That's a great quote right there. All right, so stories we didn't have time to cover this week. News.bitcoin.com. Rapper Soldier Boy has released a new single titled Bitcoin. Um, so do check that one out on YouTube. Um, and I'm not going to do the dance. Um, but there's uh, there's another story here from wealthmanagement.com. Rick Elderman invests in cryptocurrency indexer Bitwise Asset Management, which is a big story this week. Another story from Coindesk. Um, crypto assets on Winklevoss Gemini Exchange are now insured which is interesting. Um, insurance, uh, one, I'm surprised that they weren't already, but two, uh, interesting that a, a depository has now got the insurance. Um, so there we go. Um, and a link to dr.co, uh, D-I-A-R.co. Uh, Coinbase volumes have hit a one-year low. Uh, DR are probably one of the best um, kind of anti-establishment um, analyst voices out there. They're, they're not so much of the uh, kind of libertarian, but almost the uh, opposite side of the spectrum. But really interesting analysis coming out of those guys. So I would recommend checking that out. All right, time for Tweet of the Week. Tweet, tweet. It's the Tweet of the Week. Tweet of the Week this week comes from Crypto Bobby. Um, and this one is talking about Iconomi um, or ICN, the utility token, who are actually discontinuing their utility token. So the tweet reads, Iconomi are discontinuing their utility token, reissuing as a security token and offering a buyback to token holders at a 13% premium if exchanges stop support for the ICN token, which is, we'll pay you more if the exchanges pull this thing out. Wow. Uh, will be interesting to watch if others try and do the same any thoughts on this one june i guess um and i, I don't know too much about um i economy I, I you that's how i pronounce it yeah i have no idea how to pronounce this by the way but yeah the accent is is, is a tough one um but i kind of wonder what it would be a security of um, i don't i don't really know their business um, i would be interested to know kind of how that Please. They're offering shares in their business. Um, so all holders of ICN tokens will be given the right to convert those tokens into shares of a Liechtenstein holding company. What that actually means is a fair question. Producer Petra is shrugging his hands and shoulders and his eyes are shrugged somehow. I don't know how he even managed that, but he did. So yeah, this, this is an interesting one. But um, as Colin G. Platt, GSAS himself, um, said, they fought the law and the law won. Well, you can't argue with that, except, you know, anything based on Liechtenstein can't be bad, can it? Uh, oh, surely not. Um, what what I find interesting about this is we're seeing the path to remediation. Um, so it's not necessarily the SEC comes in and shuts you down and you don't necessarily go to prison. It's here's a way out of the position we found ourselves in. And that way out may not involve you being particularly wildly profitable in the future, but it does mean you end up uh, not going to jail, uh, hopefully. Uh, but there's also th this interesting question for tokens uh, projects that were in that position, which is, if they get to the other side of this security token issuance, do they still get listed on these other exchanges? Do they still have liquidity? Um, or do we see this other thing start to emerge that looks like crowdfunding meets um, token platforms meets something else? And is is that the end of punk rock? 
Yeah, it's super fascinating. I think we've seen a little bit of this before. Remember when Bitfinex uh, was hacked? Yes. And, uh, you know, they instituted a, a haircut uh, across all of their customers um, and they issued their own token as part of that process. And uh, over, I think it was maybe six to 12 months, that token gained enough value that the customers were made whole again. So there's all these interesting kind of kludges, I think, uh, with how people are using tokens, um, interacting with tokens um, to to get out of various sticky situations. So it's going to be interesting to watch this one and to see if we see any more like this in the near future. Um, but I, I do wonder if this is all signs pointing to the, the ICO as was has disappeared. I saw a really great chart earlier, and I can't remember where it was, that showed the ICOs by dollar amount raised going back for a year, and it was almost a perfect spike up and then a spike back down. Um, and the, the ICO as we knew it a year ago is, is almost not being issued, that sort of ERC20 token um, issued to lots of people with a website and a wallet address seems to be almost a thing of the past. We shall see um, all this and more in future shows. Um, Alrighty, uh, that's it for the news. And Adi Benari was actually meant to be on the show, but he's got a bit of a sore throat. Um, but luckily, you still get to hear his voice when it was in fine form. Uh, Colin caught up with him a couple of weeks back, and let's hear from them now. So I uh, wanted to catch up with you about all of the cool new things you're doing, um, including an interesting topic on uh, tokens, actually. Um, but Addy, can you just tell our listeners real quick, who are you, what do you guys do? Yeah, so I'm the founder and CEO of a company called Applied Blockchain. We've been around for almost three years now, building blockchain solutions for clients. And uh, we've got a mix of, it's a 50-50 split between startups and corporates. Okay. So we get to see a really interesting uh, set of projects to work on, uh, both in the corporate world and, and the cutting-edge uh, startup environments I, as well. And I know a lot of them are probably very secretive, but there was one that we talked to you a while ago about that was public, which was dealing with oil supply chain. You guys got a bunch of investment. Can you tell us, for our listeners that uh, didn't hear you at that point, a bit about that project and some of the other ones, maybe you can give us a flavor of what it is. Yeah, so um, in, in terms of the large companies we've worked with, so we did some work for banks uh, and then some work in the aviation industry, um, specifically with, C- with a company called CETA, which is owned by the airlines. Um, and the other areas we've been involved in are telecoms, automotive, uh, but also energy. Uh, and in energy, we've been working closely with Shell for about a year and a half now. Um, they ran a competition with a bunch of blockchain startups and selected us. Um, part of that was uh, giving us project work uh, on some really interesting major projects that, that they're involved in, um, but also uh, they offered to invest. And at that point, we took our first uh, investment and we brought in a, a London-based VC, Calibrate, um, uh, in, into the mix as well. Congratulations again on, on doing that. That's a, it's not an easy thing to raise money from a big company like that. So uh, massive props and then bringing on further VC. Yeah, thank you. No, they, they were surprisingly quick, actually, relative, relative to, to what you'd expect from a large corporate. Um, so we worked with some really good people there, and it, and it actually happened a lot more quickly. You guys must just be that good. Uh. <laughs> so I want to, before we get into to things about tokens, um, can you just tell us a bit, when you're looking and talking to enterprise, um, are they talking solely about permissioned blockchains, DLT type stuff, or are they also interested in cryptocurrencies and public blockchains as well? Yeah, I mean, for me, the, the, the logical conclusion of, uh, of a lot of the DLT or, you know, let's say private blockchain work um, is that eventually in the long run, uh, if you bring tokens of value of some sort into it, then it becomes a lot more interesting. Okay. Uh, so I think even for the corporates, that's potentially part of the, the end game or where, where this could all end up. 
the gradual yeah. opening of it's the... It, yes, yes, because uh, we, we are, our focus has always been smart contracts. Uh, and that's been more about data and, and data integration and process integration. Um, but most processes in business lead to some sort of commercial exchange. Uh, and so if you, if you underpin that commercial exchange with data and process exchange, uh, uh, then ultimately you can end up with something super efficient, a lot more efficient than we have today. So almost all the use cases that we have, it doesn't matter how they start, that they end up in that value exchange. And that's where you start talking about uh, assets or, or tokens of value that can be exchanged by the different parties openly. Uh, and, and that's, of course, where you logically end up with tokens. You, you make it seem all very logical, but it is quite radical for a lot of these people. And, yeah. and I mean, you must see and contend with that on a regular basis. Um, yes. So a lot of the companies we work with, actually some of the startups as well, we, we, we go through this journey of, uh, of, of really starting with a blank sheet of paper, looking at an industry and seeing where, where it can, uh, could end up, given what this technology can enable. Um, and, then, and then you roll back to, OK, where do we start? What do we build today? What needs to happen? And I think blockchain in general is, is a long journey um, because you're not talking about a technology that you just take and deploy inside your, your company and that's it. It's obviously a network. Yeah. You need your counterparts on there. You need the rest of the industry on there in, in, in many cases and you need lots of other things. So that type of work, uh, that's a long journey. Uh, and so we, we're just at the beginning of that with, with almost all of the projects that we're involved in. So you and I have been talking for the last three years or so, I think, um, and talking about this being a long journey. When is it live? I, I, in some way, shape, or form, in an enterprise, in your opinion? Yeah, I think I think there's live and there's meaningful live. Okay. So I think live, live meaning it's in production. Yeah. Um, I think we have projects. Uh, you know, we have some projects in production. We've got three corporate projects where we've been we've already been mandated to to put them into production. So we're in the process of doing that. Uh, we've got one that's in production environments already, uh, and and two of the startup projects as well. Um, but being in production is one part of that. I think the, the, the harder part is decentralizing that production environment. And when you say decentralize that production yeah. environment, what does that mean specifically? So for me, blockchain, uh, the, the added value of blockchain, so the, the, the core, if you like, here, um, is additional security for the users of the system through having a group that's providing security as opposed to one party. All right. So for that, you, and that, that, that for me is decentralization. So the extreme of that is the public networks. Uh, and the other extreme is the private networks, which most of which today are essentially controlled by one party or a very small group. Um, so I think the process of going live with one party is stage one. You've now got the technology deployed and enabled and accepted inside an organization. Then the next step is actually building that out and deploying it into others. And, and you've got some projects where they're live with a very small group or a couple of counterparts where there's one or two transactions happening. But I think we're all looking for meaningful business activity to, to start occurring on this technology. Yeah, and really kind of showing the, the actual value rather than just retooling for the purpose of retooling, I guess. So you guys are also going through your own kind of opening and, and rethinking things and, and talking about tokens of your own. Yeah, so, so I guess uh, as a company, we've, we've been dealing since day one with both the large companies, which is kind of my background, um, and also the startups, uh, which, which is kind of what we are as well. Um, so we're sitting between, the, between those two worlds and building for both. Uh, it's a really, first of all, it's a really interesting position to be in. Um, the startups are pushing, obviously, uh, faster towards uh, token-driven models. Um, are looking to use tokens to, uh, to, to underpin their own projects. So we, we've become involved in that 
But because we've also got corporate clients, we're, we're, we're very careful and conservative about all of that. We also we, we took the funding from Shell and from Calibrate to start developing product of our own. Um, and I think we've spent these three years uh, building solutions for others, um, but actually looking at the gaps uh, and starting to fill some of those gaps. And that's where our own products and tools that we're putting out there um, are starting to materialize. Uh, one of those is solving that core problem that we just talked about, which is how do we encourage private networks to, or, or parties that have set up private networks to become more trustless and to become more decentralized? Okay. Uh, and that's the problem that we're looking to solve through a project that we're calling Fern. Uh, and Fern is, for, for Fern, we're, it, it is based on a token model. So that's something that we've kicked off recently. Um, so when you say it's based on a token model, can you kind of yeah. walk us through this? Yeah, so what we figured is that, uh, I mean, we can see this with a lot of our clients and many other projects out there. So let's say you're a startup. Um, you come up with an idea for a blockchain solution for a specific industry. Um, you want to deploy it on a public network, but it, uh, in most cases it won't scale. It's going to, start, it's going to be quite expensive if you're pushing a lot of transactions. Um, and if you're, if you're dealing with larger companies or in a more regulated environment, then you have those challenges as well. So almost all projects that we see inevitably start off on a testnet or private network. Um, now, that developing applications in that environment is quite straightforward because there's very little resistance. But then actually building out that network and getting counterparts on is a bit of a challenge. So there seems to be this assumption that you know, we'll, we deal with other parties. We'll just, just ask them to host a node. Um, we've been through this with companies, and it's not that straightforward. Um, parties have to be incentivized. Uh, you have to create an environment where it makes sense for them to do that. So what we're trying to do with Fern is actually create this protocol where a private network can actually automatically engage with um, parties that would host a node or provide in, or Oracle services or similar um, when they prove that they can comply with its requirements. So those might be regulatory requirements, security requirements, geographical location requirements, and so on. Um, so they prove that they're compliant with those, and then they, they will be randomly selected by the protocol from a pool of compliant uh, providers in order to provide services into that private network. And that means that that private network is actually relegating control of part of the network itself, um, which makes the solution more trustless and more like the public chains, and we think actually delivers the security that, that is the promise behind using the blockchain technology in the first place. So that's, that's, I think, a really interesting and powerful idea that you, you've come up with. And I just want to kind of rephrase it my own, uh, but I'm, I'm sure I'll get some things wrong, so please correct me. Um, the analogy I like to use with, with permission blockchains for a little while now is, is kind of talking about a football stadium. And um, you have people playing whatever game it is and, and different teams doing it. You have a stadium as well, and that's kind of your blockchain. But you need people selling and taking tickets at the door and making this economically viable as a business. And, and you're allowing people to sell the tickets at the door and then make that economic usefulness inside of it rather than just saying, we get some common good out of this thing, so we should all be paying for it. Is that kind that, of a that, fair that's correct. That's correct. So we will actually, as part of this protocol, we measure the contribution of each party and they, they get rewarded accordingly. Um, you could do that within a, a private network environment. Um, what we think is interesting here is actually to... To, to if you're providing if you're successfully providing a service into one private network environment, you should be able to passport that into others because you've got proof that you've built up on the blockchain here, mm -hmm. which effectively allows you to build up a, a reputation, proof of, of delivery, if you like, of, uh, of providing service, um, which which you can then uh, you can then passport to other to other networks. So it's really taking that notion of the way that miners in in a public proof of work system 
work, you can say, look, this is, this is us, yes. and we can use that elsewhere, but then within an environment that's not necessarily built for the same reasons that uh, a Bitcoin or an Ethereum would be built, but built for some, something Yeah, co correct. So it's really taking the same principles as you have on the public network, but then creating a more palatable version of that for, for the private networks. Um, and we do use the private network to, to manage reputation. So we have the, the, the single account out there on the, on the public network, not identifiable, but something that you can, um, that, that allows that single point to exist with your reputation uh, and build up a proof uh, and actually stake, which is what's behind this model. Um, in, and that, that then lives across all the public blockchains that you, uh, that, that you provide services into. That is really cool. And I think it's, it's nice to see, I mean, you've been through it, you've seen the inside, the outside of, of enterprise and, and public blockchains. And it's nice to kind of see you bring those two ideas together. And we had Amber Balde on the show previously when she was kind of saying, you know, there's, there's things to learn from both sides rather than just re-engineering processes and trying to make them cheaper if you're coming from the enterprise or trying to disrupt everything if you're coming from the outside. So very refreshing look. I, I, I got a question for you, though, kind of in general. What do you think the milestones that we need to hit in the next, call it six to 12 months, by the end of 2018 or this time next year, what are the milestones you'd like to see to say we're either on track or if we don't hit them, we're off track? Yeah, first of all, I'd like to see some transparency around the, the, the projects that are out there. Um, so I think, uh, as you say, you know, is a project live? What does that mean? Is a project actually really being decentralized? So where is the real value coming through on the blockchain or by using this technology? Um, so I think it would be great not just to have lots of projects announced and, and be out there, but actually to get that information, um, because that's really the, the reassurance that we need to provide to the users, the ultimate users of these systems, uh, that there is, there, there is a better, more secure service being provided as a result of... Uh, so if you're a company, put your code on GitHub, basically, or GitLabs, I guess. Yeah, or, or, or provide information about the, the network itself. Yeah, so who's hosting nodes yeah. and providing some level of transparency. So we're not saying everything needs to be opened up like a public network now, right. but I think uh, uh, as you should go as far as you can uh, within your uh, regulatory uh, yeah. privacy environment and so on uh, to, to actually open up, to show the trust, to, get, yeah. to gain the trust of your users. Yeah, I, I can only echo that. That would be awesome to see people talk about more of these details when they say, you know, we've done this proof of concept permission blockchain this and we've done this and I mean, we often go through the show and we say well, what does this actually mean somebody said I put this on a blockchain and that's quite meaningless generally um, and a lot of times it's just hot air and people doing marketing but there are some very valid things out there and sometimes people can share sometimes they can't but when they they can they should go that way yeah I, I, I totally agree um, great well thank you very much for coming on Andy where can people find out more about you and about Applied Blockchain and, and hopefully come to you with their project ideas yeah so Applied Blockchain we have AppliedBlockchain.com uh, and for Fern specifically we have Fern.network excellent thank you very much Alrighty, that was Colin and that was Addy with his voice sounding fantastic. And that was um, Blockchain Insider. Um, just as a reminder, we're 11FS and we're a challenger consultancy working to shape the next generation of financial services. I would argue that we're the challenger consultancy. Um, next week on the 15th of October, we're going to be revealing something really, really special that we've been working on. Um, you might have seen our sneak preview videos on the 11FS team Twitter. Uh, if you haven't, go check them out. I think they almost look like we're going to drop some sneaker or something. I'd, I'd love to do a sneaker drop. Um, make sure you're keeping an eye on our social channels to see if it is actually a sneaker drop or if it's something else. But 
I think you're going to enjoy this. This is going to be fun. And if you're following already, just say hi. We'd love to hear from you. Um, are we too technical? Are we not technical enough? Um, we'd love your feedback. Uh, you can get in touch uh, at B-Chain Insider or at 11FS Team. Um, and also, once you're getting in touch, uh, June, uh, where can people find out more about you? Come hang out at the Coindesk London meetup in a couple of weeks. Um, you can get all the details on my Twitter at Junian, J-O-O-N-I-A-N. Brilliant. Um, I shall do my best to be there. Claire, how about your good self and Circle? So for Circle, uh, at Circle Pay, we've got some fun events coming up. So do do check us out. And uh, Claire, look at, look at my LinkedIn profile. Uh, you're keeping it old school. I respect right. that. <laughs> um, speaking of um, Microsoft-owned entities, Aman, how about yourself? <laughs> so uh, Twitter, yeah. uh, at A. Coley, uh, for me personally, and for Microsoft and blockchain, uh, just go to your favorite search engine. Uh, Azure block, <laughs> blockchain is a great way to do it. Um, and for anything digital transformation, we're a great company to work with. Apparently so. Alrighty. Um, a big thanks to our amazing production team here at 11FS, uh, producer Petre and Laura, and of course, Michael Bailey, the editor superstar that is uh, walking around this room right now. Thank you. And thank you, our listener. Um, we'll have more Blockchain Insider next week. Please do remember to tell your friends about us. Remember to subscribe, and we'll speak to you soon. Goodbye. Goodbye.